Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I recently had the chance to talk with Elena Konis about her new book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2014. Uh, Professor Konis is in the history department at Emory University. This is a really fantastic big book that unfolds in three parts. It's dense with evidence, but amazingly, it's also delightfully written social history. The aim is to explore two big questions. First, how did vaccination in the United States since the 1960s come to seem like a settled, accepted good? And then given that, it came to be more or less accepted. How can vaccination as a practice get opened up and uh, debated later through feminist movements, environmental movements, and other sorts of health concerns? The overarching claim is that the practice of vaccination in the United States in the post-war era was never done for purely medical reasons alone. I had the chance to talk with Professor Konis about this new book with a set of students, and we read it through part of my class, A Medicine on Trial. I hope you enjoy. I'm talking with Elena Konis. Thank you so much for making the time uh, to talk about Vaccine Nation, a book that we enjoyed a lot. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So I wanted to give um, the folks here who are doing the collective interview with me a chance to um, introduce themselves as well. So I'm going to be uh, passing around the floor for a moment. Okay. Hello, my name is Giovanna Pires, and I'm a sophomore at Vanderbilt. My name is Courtney Robinson, and I'm a junior at Vanderbilt. Hi, um, I'm Molly Moreau, and I'm also a junior at Vanderbilt. 
Hi, I'm Allison Smith, and I'm also a junior at Vanderbilt. Hi, I'm Michael Shulman. I'm a senior at Vanderbilt. <laughs> and uh, this is Laura again. I, of course, defy age. So, <laughs> um, so vaccine um, nation, it seems to be that the overarching claim is that the practice of vaccination in the U.S. was never done or even avoided for medical reasons alone. And then said it's a um, wide acceptance of vaccination as a uh, relates to social movements and political priorities, financial interests, uh, cultural resonances, and all these other factors, not exclusively uh, medicine alone. Um, and in the book, you show how um, the eventual acceptance and then at times dismantling of um the rhetoric of the good benefits of vaccine was done in relation to children itself. Now, the story that you tell is focused on the United States, and it starts in 1960, and you um, distinguish 1960 to the present uh, as opposed to earlier periods as the new age of vaccination. So could you... um, Explain for listeners what you have in mind by the new age of vaccination. And you're, you're following your actors here, as I understand it, in using this phrase. Yes, I am to some extent. But I'm, and I'm also following some other historians who have begun to make a similar claim or began to make a similar claim at the tail end of, of histories that covered an earlier period or that covered the pre- and post-1960s period, among them James Colgrove, for instance. Um, And what stood out to me is that while there are some similarities between the way vaccination is conducted and the roles that it plays and the functions it serves in the pre-1960s era versus the post-1960s era, in the 1960s you have a couple of significant changes. And one of them is that the the federal government takes a kind of front and center proactive role really for the first time. And what I mean is a proactive role in supporting the cause of vaccination across the U.S. Before this, the and the role of government, both at the federal level and even at the local level, had usually been reactive. Um, there had been some federal investment in vaccination research during World War II. There was, of course, the the moment after polio vaccination became so contentious when the polio vaccine, the soft polio vaccine, was first approved in 1954, when the federal government was forced to kind of step in and ensure fair distribution and access. But again, these were all kind of reactive steps. And in 1962, with the passage of Kennedy's Vaccination Assistance Act, what you have for the first time really is Washington saying, okay, we're getting behind the cause of vaccination and we are putting money behind programs that ensure that vaccination is as widely used as possible. And this is forward thinking in a couple of ways. It's forward thinking in that the the money is put into place before there are any epidemics that come around. And the money is also put in place. This is in a kind of a subsequent iteration of the original law that's passed under Kennedy. In that iteration of the law, the... Um, the Vaccination Assistance Act is expanded to cover diseases that come to be preventable via vaccination in the future, specifically measles. 
so, again, forward thinking in, in two ways. The other way that the this new era of vaccination really gets underway in the 60s is by a focus on, as you guys already know, what health officials at the time called the, quote, mild diseases. Before the 1960s, there was, it's a bit of a generalization, but, but um, an accurate one, I'll say, that vaccination was largely reserved for diseases that occurred at an epidemic scale and that the public was, to, to a greater or lesser extent, on board with preventing, be it smallpox or polio. There was widespread fear of both of these diseases. And when we began to vaccinate against the, again, quote, milder diseases in the 1960s, federal health officials, doctors, and, and the like said, you know, this this is a change from how we've used vaccines in the past, and we need to think about how we're going to use vaccines in this new era of vaccination against mild diseases. And the third major shift has to do with how those vaccines came to be used, and that is largely on or in children, and their use was largely enforced through the adoption of laws that required those vaccines for school. And that kind of set of reasons is what made the post-1960s era so distinct from the era that came before. One of the things I especially admired about the, the book in, is that since you're, uh, you've made a compelling case for there some, being something distinctive about the new era of vaccination in terms of the way it centralized um, uh, in a coordinated effort with the, with the federal government and the use of public schooling and schooling in general as a way to um, enforce um, consistent vaccination is that you were using what could seem to be really dry, boring, uh, bureaucratic historical sources and huh. really in, <laughs> interpreting them and using them in creative ways. So some of the things I, I especially liked were the ways that you um, – pulled out the case studies and were looking at how virologists were um, talking and thinking about children in institutions. So just your use of sources um, was really, I thought, um, admirable and fantastic. And here I'm going to hand it over to Allison because we wanted to ask you a bit more about how you make choices, how you made choices as a historian um, and ultimately the book sticks reasonably closely to presidential administrations and sort of what gets included and what gets excluded in a really readable account, but one in which there's must be just mounds and mounds of material. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Cronus. Hi. Um, I wanted, I thought you did a great job capturing the emotion and motivation of each era that you discussed. So I was wondering, was it difficult to determine which pieces of evidence to, to cite, considering that you aimed to capture the sentiments of an entire nation? And on that same note, how did you determine what constitutes the nation and who to include? Mm, that is a really, those are two really good questions. And I'll start with the first one, and I'll say that, it may be surprising to hear this, but there was less evidence than I thought there was going to be. Um, I did work at three presidential archives. This is I did research at three presidential archives and in the records of the Centers for Disease Control and also the Public Health Service. And 
what really surprised me was how little material there was on the specific vaccination initiatives of these three presidents who passed what I thought and what others have also indicated in the scientific literature, really kind of landmark uh, vaccination legislation. And so to some extent, my job was made easier by the fact that there was fairly little to work with in the presidential libraries that I uh, was conducting my research at. It was a bit harder at the um, the NARA or the National Archives facilities in Atlanta and in College Park, Maryland, where the archives of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and the Public Health Service, or the PHS, are housed. And there was, first of all, much, much more material to deal with. I also, even though, to come back to a point that Laura, you made a moment ago, even though it seems like I was using a lot of dry and bureaucratic sources, a lot of what I came across was this material in its kind of raw form. And it's it's so much more exciting to see <laughs> bureaucratic language even in its raw form, the scribbled notes, the kind of tables and collections of numbers and musings. And what I did in these two archives of the CDC and the PHS was just give myself time to browse through box after box after box until I started to notice patterns. And then once I started to notice patterns, like the use, for example, of the term mild to describe diseases, I thought, okay, here's something that deserves closer attention. And so I went back to those sources and looked again to try to figure out what the story was. Um, your other, the other part of your question was about how you define a nation and who to include. And I have to say, I think that is almost every historian's struggle. And I mean, especially historians who take on a topic as, as large and broad as to some extent this one was. And you can answer that question or find an answer for yourself in terms of just dealing with what you can find, which is the position I was put in in my research at the Presidential Archives. There was so little, so I just used what I could. But I also tried to kind of keep an eye open and a, an ear open to voices that I kind of saw just sort of peeking in from the edges or, you know, when I saw discourse about certain groups, I try to think really creatively about, well, how can I get that voice in here? Where else can I go to look? So in trying to figure out the voice of a nation, I again, I started in these federal, official, and national, and presidential archives, started looking for hints of other voices that I should look for, and then started going to other, sometimes unusual sources for... Um, more information on what those groups were saying. And one of those, as just an example, um, when I was at the Centers for Disease Control Archives, I came across a box of surveys of mothers in, I believe it was several regions in the southeast. And I was looking at a number of surveys that these mothers had responded to about the immunization of their children. and. The surveys had been mailed to the families. The mothers responded to the surveys. And throughout these surveys, they were indicating lots of doubt about the vaccines that they had been told to give their, their children. And it turned out I couldn't use these surveys because they had personal identifying information. But 
what they said was that there's something here that I need to look into. I know certain things about this community. I have a sense of their doubts. So how else can I get information about what people in all parts of the country, specifically of um, uh, specifically people with children, what were they thinking about the vaccine recommendations that were being put forth? And through a chain of events that I won't walk you through now, one source that I came across was something called Mothering Magazine, which started being published in the mid-1970s, so a little bit later. It started, it came out originally, I think, they published out of Colorado, and then they moved to New Mexico. And I ended up getting in touch with the current editors of the magazine and going out to their offices and looking through boxes of material that some of the editors had collected over decades of writing about things that some parents um, felt was information that they needed to make parenting decisions, but information that they weren't getting elsewhere. So this is just an example of how I stumbled across one thing in one archive and it led me to look for something else and I ultimately ended up finding a fairly... um, we'll say, unorthodox collection of sources someplace else. That helped me start to answer the question that I was trying to answer. Yeah, your attention to the language that's used is so interesting and helpful. I mean, I'm continually stunned at how um, the threat of a nuclear attack in the 1960s could be used to justify anything, including uh, tetanus vaccines, as it turns out, um, given that the, the sorts of wounds... On the logic that the wounds that people would have would be the types that would be susceptible to tetanus. Um, and on the, the note of the language use, it seems like one of the patterns you were um, picking up, uh, thinking about Chapter 2 on the measles uh, vaccine, was thinking about how the terms urban, black, uh, and problem all became all started to be used uh, almost interchangeably or um, to be to be coded as the same thing. And one of the questions that the chapter asks is um, how the measles vaccine came to be accepted, given that it wasn't obvious that vaccination was an appropriate response to something like measles. So could you just explain this for us? Sure, yeah. And again, the measles story is so tightly connected to the the story of polio, which is a story of a disease that the American public, in particular the middle class segment of the population, was living thoroughly in fear of and 100% wanted to prevent. And when the vaccine came out, middle class families initially at least got their children vaccinated in droves. And at the same time, there is a, there are a number of things going on at the CDC with the CDC kind of trying to redefine itself in the post-war era and figure out what its, its role is going to be um, within the federal government from, you know, the 1950s going forward. And their epidemiologists are called in to help ensure the safe use of the the polio vaccine and to help kind of surveil and see how well the vaccine is is performing in terms of driving down disease. And as they're doing this, there's a new vaccine in development, the measles vaccine, and research on that vaccine actually dates back to 
World War II, um, but it had, you could say, had been put on hold after the war when polio became a bigger health priority. And then once the polio vaccine comes out, measles research, measles vaccine research picks up again. And when the measles vaccine comes out, the CDC epidemiologists and immunization um, officers who had been studying and looking at polio said, well, here's a, here's a vaccine for a disease, measles, that causes way more mortality and morbidity than polio does. That is, it's doing more harm. So we should be using this vaccine just as widely as we're using the polio vaccine. And they thought, here's a public that's ready to get on board. They're, they're already on board with polio vaccines, so let's just tell them, okay, time to get vaccinated against measles too. And what they found was that the public was was largely resistant. The public was kind of indifferent. Well, we've lived with this disease for so long. It's, you know, it's not an exciting cause. It wasn't occurring, you know, in kind of newly epidemic proportions the way polio was. It didn't have a big media campaign behind it as polio did. That's another story that I'll set aside for now. Um, and so they came up against this public indifference and Yet one of the easiest paths to overcoming that resistance was to encourage vaccination among the, the people who would get vaccinated. And I started to notice um, in the material that I was looking at in the CDC archives that these immunization experts at the CDC were saying, okay, so some people are now starting to get vaccinated against measles, but it's just the cream of the crop. It's just the people who are already, you know, taking to their children to the doctor on a daily basis, who are already committed to the cause of, you know, good children's health. And that happened to be the middle class, the, the same segment of the population that was so quick to get on board, on board with polio vaccination. And they began to strategize, well, how do we get beyond this demographic? And how do we also deal with the fact that we've actually, in a sense, changed the epidemiology of measles by promoting the vaccine and having this vaccine, you know, get used so widely among the middle class? What, what happened was suddenly measles, like polio before, it became what they called a, quote, disease of the slums. It hadn't been before. It had been fairly widely distributed throughout the population. But as the middle class got vaccinated, suddenly measles seemed to be an urban disease, a, quote, disease of the slums, and it got mapped on to a totally different population. That, what shall we call it? I mean, awareness is not quite the right word, <laughs> but that view of measles led to a, another shift in immunization promotion in which the very same materials that had targeted the middle class and encouraged them to get vaccinated suddenly now reflected this idea that measles was a disease of the, quote, slums, the, quote, ghettos, the, quote, inner city, and that we needed to vaccinate widely to protect against this threat emanating from the inner city at a time when the American city was suffering such a dramatic decline too. So you can see how these ideas kind of sort of snowball into one another. Yeah, and on the same note, one of the, the things that comes up throughout the book with the, with a variety of diseases, so um, mumps and then um, more recently, I, I think was it um, hepatitis B, 
that the diseases themselves are taken to be um, not that big of a deal until there is um, a vaccine a vaccine available or a campaign uh, to deal with a milder illness that the disease itself comes to be um, reframed and you you have a nice um, integration of some of Charles Rosenberg's work on that front in thinking about mumps um, and sort of the, the recasting of those diseases and all of these um, stories of vac- vaccination when thinking about um, children are also as you point out always questions about parenting and especially about women and gender and so on that front um, I just wanted to hand this question over to Molly okay um, hi, Dr. Honus. Um, hi, Molly. In Chapter 5, you discuss the feminist rhetoric involved in, er- in the early vaccination movement. Could you elaborate on how the feminist, feminist movement, when partnered with the anti-vaccination movement, plays on the conflict between individual rights versus social responsibility? Sure. And I, I want to answer this question by being really clear that what to kind of properly characterize the relationship between feminism and vaccine skepticism, we've got to think about kind of zooming out a bit and away from the idea that feminists were directly influencing or becoming anti-vaccinationists. I think what we see instead here is that with the feminist, with second wave feminism, we have a related uh, women's health movement that takes place. And the women's health movement injects a number of new ideas into the kind of broader cultural discourses around health and medicine. And so as a consequence of the women's health movement, more and more women begin to, for example, research different things related to their health. They begin to question their doctor's recommendations. They begin to wonder about the safety of the drugs that are prescribed to them or to their family members. And as they do so, they're drawing on a a wealth of examples of, you know, cases in which women listened to their doctors without questioning or took drugs without questioning or accepted scientific advice without reading further and then found out later that they had put themselves or their families or, you know, their children at at risk of of undue harm. And it's those set, that kind of set of ideas that begins to influence women's start to think about, and not all women, just some women, start to think about the vaccine recommendations that really begin to expand in the 1970s. By the 1970s, you've got a handful of these new vaccines against the, again, quote, milder diseases, measles, mumps, and rubella among them. And you also have a push at the state level for new laws to require those vaccines for school. And later in the 1970s, you have a push at the federal level from the Carter administration to require those vaccines for school and to ensure their their broad-scale uptake. So on the one hand, you have more and more calls to vaccinate at precisely a time when a growing number of women are getting the message that 
you need to question your doctor's advice. You need to, you know, do your own research on your own health concerns and on your body and how to best take care of your body. And some women, you know, put these two together and start to say, well, if I should be questioning my own, you know, my own doctor about the advice that he usually or sometimes she is giving me, then shouldn't I be also questioning the advice that our doctor is giving for our children? And it's at that point that you have a kind of growing number of, of women questioning the vaccination advice that they're hearing. And uh, just in brief, that pattern kind of continues and evolves into the 1980s. But to sum up, it kind of emerges from this moment of overlap in the 1970s, overlap between increased immunization promotion on the one hand and the kind of widespread rhetoric of the women's health movement on the other hand. The book strikes me as... um especially ambitious and successful because it looks at both how vaccination started to really stabilize as an acceptable thing to do, widespread compulsory vaccination um, in the 1960s. But then in the the second part of the book, you then show how these, um, what could seem to be accepted um, depending on the, the disease in question, the vaccine in question, could actually then be opened back up and turned into problems and matters for debate. And how this um, resonated or, or um, was in many ways related to uh, the new left politics and second wave feminism, and then also um, the, a really great chapter on uh, environmentalism. And a lot of these later debates... Uh, were related, or I think maybe the central one, is, as you point out, is about autism and the link between vaccination and autism and the uh, the Wakefield studies. And so here Michael wanted to sort of raise a set of questions. Okay. Hi, Dr. Cronus. Um, Hi, Michael. In Chapter 9, you talk about how the vaccine autism debates were good for ratings and so were highly reported upon by the news media. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the factors that motivated the media to vilify parents and mothers in particular who refused vaccination for their children. Sure. And I actually, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to say that I think there are many more reasons than I got into in that chapter. And so I think there's lots of room for people to offer um, other theories, additional theories to explain what's, what went on in the 2000s. But as that chapter argues, the 2000s saw the fracturing of the, the media environment. And suddenly journalists are, you know, facing layoffs, are scrambling for work, newspapers are shutting down, closing their doors, going entirely online. All kinds of news outlets are scrambling for readers, for eyes, you name it. And so there's this intense competition which forms the backdrop for the vaccine autism debate. And I I think it's important to keep that in mind because so much of this debate takes place in the media and is in a way not created by the media but sustained by the media. And to kind of rewind a little bit, concerns about autism, as you guys likely noticed, 
date back to at least the early 1980s that I could find. So they're there for a while. And one reason why, for, for example, um, McCarthy even undertake I'm sorry, not McCarthy, but Wakefield undertakes a study about MMR vaccine and autism is because there's kind of brewing concern and worry about this. And so his, his work is kind of a reflection of something that's, that's already going on. He doesn't create that worry. He's really responding to that worry. And that worry is around throughout the 80s. It's around throughout the 90s. It gets a little bit conflated with the issue of thimerosal in vaccines in the 1990s. Um, and then what happens in the 2000s is that at this point, not only is the media environment changing, but the vaccination environment is changing. There are several new vaccines added to the the schedule of childhood vaccination in the late 1990s and into the 2000s. So there's more um, immunization activity going on in the context of this changing media environment, in the context of long simmering doubts about the safety of vaccines and long simmering doubts about um, or concerns about the potential for vaccines to cause learning disabilities or developmental disabilities like autism. And in this environment in the early 2000s, oh, and there's also, I should add, the context of a kind of major backlash against the pharmaceutical industry in the early 2000s as well. So the vaccine autism story brings together all of these issues that are already resonating for the public, worries about vaccines, worries about the drug companies, worries about the growing rate of autism, and the kind of growing numbers of parents who are engaged in a social movement of their own around autism, trying to find cures, trying to mobilize research dollars and um get new answers and explanations for what's behind the epidemic. And so in this context, it's almost kind of natural for the the media to take on the vaccine's autism story, especially since it's one so easily uh, positioned as a kind of gender war. Here are these, usually in media portrayals, mothers who are not listening to the science and who have these worries. And if you watch the media portrayals over the course of the 2000s, as, as I did in the course of my research, you see the story changing shape. At first, the media is reporting on the story saying, there's no connection. And then very gradually, they shift and they say, there's no connection, but parents are still worried. <laughs> so they, they keep the, the story alive and, and have a number of reasons to do so because it does resonate with so many things that are already kind of capturing people's attention. And many of these factors were, were resonating, but if I, um, if I read you correctly, it had a surprisingly, uh, the skepticism had surprisingly little effect on actual vaccination rates, um, that they, they still remained pretty high, even though the skepticism as a discourse became really, really important in a way that it had not been um, previously. And it, it, it linked into all sorts of discussions about um, who could, who should bear the financial cost of vaccination and other forms of health care and uh, Clinton's uh, uh, 
plan, ideas about how to introduce the idea of a single payer system by having something that would seem um, like a small a small project that then could be expanded through vaccination. Um, but just thinking about the the role of media and um, new media in particular as a as a particular kind of uh, circulating of, of evidence or deciding who gets to be involved in the discussion. I'm going to um, hand this to Giovanna. Okay. Hello, Dr. Konitz. Hi, Giovanna. Hi. So um, I was particularly interested in how in the later chapters, particularly the one about the introduction of the HPV vaccine, you mm-hmm. write about the role of new media and specifically social media and the influence it has on public opinion of the new vaccine. I was wondering how the role of media and its influence on public perception changed from the 1960s to the present day. Um, And in particular, does new media have a different influence than media did in the 1960s? Yes, I think it absolutely has uh, a very different effect today, too. And I think that's largely because the new media is so participatory. And in the 1960s, you essentially have... uh, uh, an American media that is parroting the materials that they're getting from Washington or from health departments. And they are simply, to a great extent, acting as a mouthpiece for government, taking the information that federal immunization scientists and officials want shared widely and then sharing that information widely. And there are far fewer examples of journalists and reporters who are kind of questioning what's going on or looking at the story behind the story in the 1960s. Follow this up to today and you have, as we call it, a new media environment, which is new in so many ways. And one of the ways in which it's new is that there's room for so many voices on online and in social media in particular. And that doesn't mean everybody's voice is reflected, but what it does mean is that people can, on the one hand, go online and look for exactly the kind of voice they want to be hearing, and they can also insert their own voice into the conversation, and that's exactly what goes on with the rollout of the HPV vaccine. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about that vaccine's history, and that is simply that really for the first time that I could find, although somebody could correct me on this if they find new evidence, the targets, the child targets or adolescent targets of these vaccines had a forum for sharing their views on the vaccine and their voices became part of the public conversation about what the role of this vaccine was and should be in our society. So a completely different relationship um, between or among the public, the media, and immunization officials in the 2000s versus the 1960s. Um, So the the book in in many ways... um, seems to be an American story, but I, of course, um, think you're being too modest in that because you also uh, drop in um, the influence of the World Health Organization. And um, as you point out, one of the, I think, exciting, for me at least, uh, reasons for studying history of medicine and social cultural studies of medicine is that diseases and other, um, other sorts of health factors actually don't 
um, don't obey political boundaries or have little regard for political boundaries. And we're seeing that especially now, of course, with Ebola, which um, we were uh, impressed that you actually discuss Ebola in the book at a moment before you could have even known about the uh, 2014 um, Ebola um, crisis and especially thinking about the role of the media. And here, um, I'm going to hand it over to Courtney to think about um, uh, how you how you think about the place of vaccine based on what you know from your own research. Okay. Hi, Dr. Conis. Hi, Courtney. Okay, so there's been a lot of um, coverage in the media about a possible Ebola vaccine. And as you also mentioned Ebola in your book, it is apparent that an Ebola is an old disease that has majorly resurfaced. Um, based on what you learned through your research and writing of Vaccine Nation, what do you think would be an appropriate response to an Ebola vaccine by the government and global community? Ooh, I, I am so sorry to do this, but I just can't answer that question right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I can comment on the response that we're seeing right now, um, and I can also comment on how I think the public has been responding, although I think it's evolved a bit. I mean, I think that if if there had been an Ebola vaccine available in in August, I think you would have seen tremendous American demand for that vaccine. And I've heard anecdotally reports of parents taking their children to the pediatrician and saying, you know, when is the Ebola vaccine available? We want it. And I think that that desire comes from a deep-seated fear of this disease and all that it symbolizes about our powerlessness against new viral diseases, especially in the absence of a vaccine. Um, I, I think that some of the things that strike me as, as notable about the Ebola story today are things that others have said as well. One reason we don't have an Ebola vaccine is because of who is affected by the disease and the fact that that population doesn't represent necessarily a robust or profitable market. It has become a, you know, belongs to a class of fairly neglected diseases in that respect. Um, and yet, the second the disease starts to threaten, in particular, Western industrialized nations, what we see is tremendous amount of resources put toward hastening the existing vaccine research and making sure that it moves as quickly as possible. And, of course, that makes sense in the context of the biggest Ebola epidemic that we have seen to date. But it also, we've got to question the fact that it's this research is only speeding up also in the context of Ebola crossing boundaries, international boundaries that it, that it hadn't before. Yeah, and it seems like the book, um, also wants to to make the point that the response to any vaccine is um, in some part almost idiosyncratic or u- unique to the vaccine and the disease itself. And so I guess it'll be um, part two, vaccine nation part two, uh, <laughs> to do an analysis of the of the Ebola crisis. Um, yeah. <laughs> and one of the just to to wrap up one of the things that I actually um, found most enlightening about the book was the fact that the notion that people or um, the the 
public rhetoric of, of America in general, the, the presumption that we would have a position on vaccination in general is itself a historical product. When um, individual vaccines started to get bundled together and the idea that you could have something that could be anything other than a great variety of responses, depending on the disease and the, um, the political circumstances of the moment. Um, Absolutely. Great. Well, we um, have taken plenty of your time, but we just want to thank you so much for talking with us and I really appreciate the conversation. Well, my pleasure. And thank you guys for all of the great questions. And I hope I've answered them to your satisfaction. And um, yeah, happy to take up any more that you may have over email. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys.